Hi, and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This week we have some audio issues as we're sat with Sam Kingsley in a cafe in Bristol, so it's a little bit um, loud, um, but bear with us. Um, Sam is from the University of Exeter and he's got insights uh, coming from art, geography, uh, Silicon Valley research, storytelling, and his own research into technology, AI, and other subjects. Hope you enjoy. So, thanks Sam um, for meeting me in this cafe. Um, close to Christmas. Um, thanks for spending your time to come and uh, come down to Bristol um, and uh, talk to us on the podcast. Um, if you could introduce yourself very briefly um, with um, what you're doing at um, Exeter. Okay, yeah, I'm a lecturer in human geography. I have got an interdisciplinary background, so uh, most of my work is concerned with technology in various ways. I'm basically a failed artist who became a social scientist. My first degree was in digital art, and then um, I was a web developer, and then I got funding to go back to university. Um, And I basically pursued a line of thinking about the ways in which we tell stories about the future around technology and so that naturally in many ways led to me doing field work in Silicon Valley. Um, So that's what my PhD research was about and I've had funding to do a bit of work around those themes since. But I guess it kind of broadened out into then thinking about, so how do you tell stories about technology as such? Um, you know, what is a technology? And why, why might that be of interest to geographers? So mostly that's then about, so how is it that we think about technology in relation to how we experience space and place? Um, and I guess I've, I've thought about that in two or three distinct ways. One is the in a sort of innovation practices, so that stems on the PhD work. Another is um, essentially thinking about uh, the ways in which what we might colloquially think about as um, surveillance, but also the ways in which um, various kinds of data are captured about us and then used to govern us, to advertise to us, and various other kinds of things, um, and, and how that kind of constitutes particular understandings of um, space and place, and how we might think about the governance of that, and the politics of that. Um, and then finally, I'm thinking about sort of much more micro scales of thinking about the body and how that relates to a kind of intimate experience of prosthesis or the ways in which we add things onto ourselves in various kinds of ways as a kind of technological experience and what that means again to space based and identity basically yeah yeah I mean it sounds like there's a lot in there actually considering you're coming from the geography's uh, kind of uh, not background so department um, you're situated it sounds like you're kind of picking on lots of threads from lots of different kind of directions uh, all to do with technology but to do with social science and politics of you know personal data and all that sort of stuff um, and also maybe looking at some of the technical implica- implementations and yeah. um, also kind of the infrastructure as well um, especially with space and place kind yeah. of infrastructure and, and how you 
you know, we move around a space, whether it's cars or, or walking and how we've interacted, all those sorts of things. Yeah, precisely. Um, and I guess geography has been variously concerned with... Um, the things that we mostly mean colloquially by technology, so more often than not, actually, that's that's devices that mediate mm-hmm. in various kinds of ways. So it's the kinds of devices that you and I have in front of us and in our pockets right now. Yep. Um, the device that's recording us. Um, <laughs> and um, and then the kinds of infrastructures that facilitate how that how those devices function. Yeah. But of course, the cup that holds my coffee in front of me is also a technology um, it's, a, it's so, a mediator mediator of your coffee up to a point I guess yeah. also it's um, an entity of non-relation insofar as it doesn't let the, the coffee go yeah um, so but um, so it's quite a broad definition yeah and for, geography takes very specific yeah. bits and I guess coming from a more humanities background I bring other aspects back into the conversation perhaps I'm not alone in that There's no, I'm not claiming any yep. amazing novelty um, but um, um, so geography is really interesting as a discipline to house yourself in because um, because it's so broad so on the one hand I, you know, I've got colleagues who are glaciologists yep. and on the other hand um, I've got colleagues who are you know, experiment with artistic practices. They are actually engage in artistic practice themselves. And I've got colleagues who are uh, activists. So mm. you can. Yeah. There's a kind of facetious answer to what is geography um, that we often teach into the first year, which is geography is what geographers do. And so, as a geographer, what I do <laughs> is geography. <laughs> I know wow. that sounds slightly nonsensical, but it does sort of make sense. Yeah, it sounds a bit like an, an artist as well. It's like, yeah. if you're an artist and you make art, it's art. It doesn't yeah. really matter what the, the art is that you're yeah, making, yeah. by virtue of being an artist. Quite. Um, that's really fascinating. There's, um, I, I'm not sure I've had contact with that many geographers, and um, that many geographers who are uh, that kind of um, progressive, um, but also interesting in other th- other kind of lots of different things, I guess. Yeah. Lots of different disciplines that come into uh, what seems like your work, um, specifically with space and place and, and mediation, but also you know, having those people around you to talk to about glaciers and um, activism <laughs> is probably very useful, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for example, you know, some of my colleagues actively use some of the technologies um, that one might be sceptical of mm-hmm. um, in their deployment in other uh, arenas. So, for example, you know, I have colleagues who use drones. But they're not using drones to surveil people um, or do anything weird. Good. They're doing yep. they're doing they're doing drones to deter they're using drones to determine, you know, the depth of an ice sheet. Um, or to do particular kinds of very high resolution mapping and that kind of stuff. Mm. So um, yeah, there's some really interesting kinds of crossover. Yeah. And I think, you know, increasingly academia is not um, is not so readily regiment, regimented. It, it might appear to be in the ways in which we communicate what we do, yep. like on websites and in various kinds of ways, the ways in which we publish, for example. But um, actually, the, the kind of everyday stuff is often quite you know, open and 
interdisciplinary in various yeah. sorts of ways. Um, so the first question I usually ask everyone who comes on to the podcast is, um, what is artificial intelligence? Right. <laughs> um, to you, I mean. What, yeah, what's an... Right. Um, it's a discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way in which um, different kinds of people tell stories uh, more or less about themselves through a kind of uh, refraction of the machine. Um, so you can think about, you know, back to short stories in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century. Mm-hmm by people like E.M. Forster and H.G. Wells. Yeah. I think Forster's machines, The Machine Stops is a really kind of interesting sort of take on these kinds of things. It, it, it more or less begins to tell the kinds of stories that we're familiar with now about particular kinds of um, extra-human agency mm-hmm. of something that is a machine yeah. um, that becomes a kind of quasi-religious entity which you know if you look at the work of people like Kurzweil or various other kinds of um, yeah. people it does definitely takes on um, uh, that kind of uh, that kind of pattern of, yeah you know pseudo-religious kind yeah. of uh, but I think at the same time of course um, it's a whole field of inquiry there's a whole load of people who are doing research so it's, yep. it's a set of endeavours um, that that some of some of those people are more ha- more or less happy about calling it AI mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> you know hence you get phrases like machine learning get used an awful lot more and yep. um, it's another instance of um, one of the stories we tell about um, techni or technics the, the, you know the affordances of being a, a technical being yeah um, so in many ways I think AI tells us more about the ways in which we conceive of our own intelligence and ideas of mind and yeah. various other kinds of things than it does about anything that we might actually make. That's, um, that's a really interesting point because what you're basically saying is AI's endeavour to learn more about us through implementing and, and researching and making things and whether the end point of the making things is you know singularity whatever shape it could formulate itself in we're actually learning more about ourselves in that kind of endeavor Mm. really or along the way we're learning a lot about ourselves yeah i think you know that's the most charitable version yeah um i think it's kind of interesting um charlie stross in one of the openings of his novels do you know charles Stross is a science fiction writer yeah british science fiction writer and um he uses a quote from somebody obscure right at the beginning of one of his books where he's it's something along the lines of um you know being interested in artificial intelligence is a bit like asking the question of you know, how a submarine swims or how an aeroplane flies. Yeah. You're sort of you're you're eliding to kind of sets of ideas. We're capable of creating machines that fly, yeah. but they don't flap wings. They yeah. do something very different. Yeah, and a submarine yeah. is more than capable of um, moving through the water, but it's not a fish. <laughs> it doesn't swim, no. for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the kinds of um, the care we might need to take yeah. 
about the stories we tell around what it is that we mean by artificial intelligence. And if we wrap those two words in scare quotes, um, um, you know, is, is then about, about precisely attending to the ways in which we think about ourselves and we think about how we understand our own intelligence and what it is that we want to get out of the world. Yeah. That's probably quite a humanist way of addressing it. Yeah. I don't think there's much wrong with that. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, if that's what um, your opinion is, is, then that's great. I guess I don't really yeah. have a fixed opinion, to be yeah. honest. I think you know, it's an interesting set of debates and an interesting set of um, ideas with and through which we can ask questions. Yep. Um, cool. Well, um, the big one out of the way. Um, so, um, I noticed that you had an award-winning uh, piece of uh, <laughs> an article that you wrote called The Matter of uh, Virtual Geographies. Um, could you briefly elaborate on that? Um, yeah, What's sure. that paper about? That paper's about the ways in which we um, tell stories about space and mediation, up to a point, digital mediation. So it's about the ways in which we use that word virtual. And... Um, the sense in which um, in lots of different domains so uh, you can think about the kind of um, pop popular understandings of um, governance how we understand what we mean by the internet what we are uh, how we understand um, mobile phones, how we understand all sorts of different kinds of devices and how they get governed and how they kind of produce different kinds of spatial experience is, is wrapped up with a, a kind of elision, which is an elision of materiality. So there's a sense in which it becomes perfectly acceptable to talk about things as being, the, the virtual as being immaterial in various kinds of ways. And of course that gets wrapped up into much bigger stories Long and you know, uh, much more enduring stories about um, how we understand what what is real. Um, so you often get um, distinctions between the virtual and the real, and we'll wrap those two things in scare quotes as well. Uh, um, so, what does that mean? So it, it means that you can, in some senses, um, take the virtual less seriously, or decide that it matters less, that it might be less of of lesser ethical import. Um, and that in some ways um, it becomes excusable to do things um, in spaces that you perceive to be somehow separate. So a lot of the writing that emerges um, from the birth of the internet onwards begins to carve out a kind of separate electronic mediated domain. Um, and that draws on all sorts of ideas about um, space that geographers have then gone on to, prob well, had already been problematizing in different kinds of ways. Yeah. So the kinds of ideas about Cartesian extension, space as a box, mm -hmm. XYZ axis, yeah. that you then somehow sort of add an additional layer to, becomes quite becomes quite problematic because of course especially once we have the devices again that we've got in front of us it's not clear where that layering is taking place or you know where one layer starts and stops um, 
and then how agency might play out you know between those layers so of course actually it becomes much more about um, forms of relationality how how we with our devices constitute relations that then might be perceived as different kinds of spatial experience so you can think about the ways in which a, um, a sense of distance might um, might be mediated through a mobile phone yep. so you, you, you get off the train and you ring the person that you're about to see um, and you say you know train was a couple of minutes late but no worries I'll be there in 10 minutes yep. so you sort of br bridged uh, a sense of distance in a particular way and then affords a particular um, phenomenological closeness, a, a sense of closeness, um, subjective sense of closeness that um, belies the fact that of course you are still topographically Very far away. distant. Yeah. Um, and of course also that that signal might have travelled a significant distance if you were to if you were to measure how the electronic signal may have travelled through the infrastructure and so on. Yeah. So actually you know and that and that's a very material thing. For example, your phone might have if we go return to this this made up conversation on the phone. Yeah. The signal might have gone a bit weird during that phone call and that might have been about the quality the literal qualities of the atmosphere surrounding you the sense in which actually it's actually quite a muggy day yep. so there's a lot more water vapor which uh, mediates how the signal can pass through the air and so it might not have gone to the closest cell tower it might have ended up going to a different one and there might have been a bit of lag or it might have been a bit crackly so something about the quality of that connection both you know literal electronic connection and a sense of connection between us yeah. is going to be affected by the ways in which the material of the air mm. actually interferes with or um, has something to do with your conversation yeah so the paper was essentially about bringing those ideas um, into a more explicit conversation in geography and thinking about that through um, in particular through the work of um, a French philosopher called Bernard Stiegler and he uses um, this idea of um, transduction um, which I think can be quite helpful about thinking about um, that kind of slippery nature of the if, what some people might think of as quite ephemeral forms of relation that we were talking about in relation to that yeah. uh, phone conversation and essentially what transduction allows us to do to think is um, the kind of temporariness of how those forms of relation uh, get forged and then may dissipate and how that is uh, uh, what gets referred to as kind of metastable. Yeah. They exist for a particular period of time, they're on a threshold, but something changes and they slip into, they transform into something else. Yeah. So in many ways, the relationship between the human and the technical is always kind of being modulated by the different transfers of agency, different transfers of energy, all sorts of kinds of forces um, that um, allow those forms of relationality to kind of um, congeal <laughs> for a moment, for want of a better yeah, word, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then kind of they'll just transform into something else. Yeah.
That sounds like an impossible uh, situation. What? Um, so you've just described there um, the layering up of all these things, the congealing of them together, yeah. and then the dispersion, uh, the transduction of these yeah. things that are uh, almost flippant and ethereal. Uh, well, so certain um, layers of these things, right? H- how can you? How can you even? Um, how useful is that? What, what is the end product of uh, thinking in that way? Because it seems like it's it's almost too much to think about. Yeah. It- I mean, there definitely is a sense in which it is an uh, an exce- excessive uh, understanding of reality. But then, um, lots of people would argue that that precisely is <laughs> what it is to be real. Um, I guess what it me- what it allows is a particular way of um, forming a kind of um, critical hook into how we have we can create particular kinds of um, descriptions and analyses of how technologies work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's um, most of the way in which um, theory matters in my work is about the ways in which concepts can do some work for us. So the ways in which they have some kind of purchase in how we can ask questions about the kinds of phenomena that we're interested in studying. As a social scientist, it tends to be that what we do is we go out and look, talk about stuff, Mm -hmm. especially people, uh, perform different kinds of analyses with and about those phenomena because they're necessary participants in our analysis. Um, um, and then thinking about what, the ways in which that then produces, maybe produces more questions or produces um, productive ways of, of kind of thinking about the, of the world. So what transduction does is um, perhaps breaks out of some slightly more clunky or mechanistic thinking um, mm that allows us um, precisely to think about um, space and place in a more nuanced way in relation to technology. Right. So it's about, it's about a sort of slightly undoing that sense of distanciation of the virtual or the digital or whatever you want to call it as yep. some, kind, some kind of ethereal realm and actually giving it bite, giving it, giving it matter again yep. uh, in our descriptions. Yep. And so, um, you know, on the, one, on the one hand, that might actually be a, a fundamentally ethical endeavour insofar as what it means is that we're attending precisely to how those, matter, those materialities get organised, how it is they can come to be, so how they get manufactured, um, what that involves, the fact that it may well involve all sorts of conflict minerals, for example, and that actually the only ways in which a lot of our devices can function is precisely through some quite um, ethically questionable um, socio-economic practices of manufacture um, from you know act- the actual mining of um, rare earth metals um, to uh, the kinds of manufacturing practice that um, various kinds of large uh, electronics companies might engage in yep. so it's actually sort of being able to sort of 
you can't ever tell the whole story. Of course you can't. Sure. Um, but it's about being able to provide what I was talking about earlier, those kind of conceptual hooks into yeah. those various kinds of phenomena so that you can begin to unpack that story differently. Have you heard of um, a philosopher called Henry uh, Bergson? Yes. So he has this idea of the intuition, yeah. which is similar but uh, not as uh, useful in this manner, I guess, uh, not as specific. But in a similar way, you're trying to kind of unfold the reality of, of what the thing is or hmm. what the situation is by um, immersing yourself in, in the possibilities yeah. and the past at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, which is one of those really interesting things that uh, I've read and, um, and discovered at the time. Um, and it seems like a similar sort of deal where you're trying to, you kind of, you know that it's in almost an impossible dream, but you're trying as much as you can to bring together these um, separate layers that get about the same event or the same uh, thing, yeah. same physical thing, yeah. same digital thing, you know, all in one place and, and keep that in your mind or keep that um, wherever. Yeah. Um, in, in that way, kind of how do you represent those sorts of, those sorts of phenomena? Uh, at, <laughs> Another member of our conversation. That's right. Um, I totally agree. Um, how do you bring those things, those separate geographies together um, and make a representation? I guess by recognising they're not separate. <laughs> um, sure. Um, and the various ways in which... So, yeah. you know, all ethnographic work is necessarily about telling particular kinds of stories. Yeah. It's, you know, in that sense, it's, um, it's different. So you're a storyteller? Yeah, up to a point, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, but I don't engage in bad creative writing, I hope. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's it's about um, providing different accounts of um, the aspects of the phenomena that you're in, interest, interested in. Mm -hmm. So the the data that you gather, however you might, you know, in the broader sense, we might conceive of the idea of data. Um, you know, necessarily are going to exceed the um, descriptive capacities that you have for a given project. So you end up writing in a particular way yep. about particular aspects because you've asked particular kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And you may come back and ask different kinds of questions of the same data later, or you may not. So it might be that those are just projects that um, you never quite crystallize. Um, so um, I guess it's about embracing the fact, embracing that and understanding that um, if you do hold to that kind of broadly kind of excessive understanding of reality that it kind of almost is too much mm -hmm. to yep. describe that you're just honest about that and then honest about how it is that you pick the kinds of stories that you're um, that you're telling yep. so for example you know Bergson does get picked up by a lot of um, sort of later 20th century philosophers precisely because of the ways in which uh, he kind of draws on a particular sense of uh, excess and the ways in which he kind of refracts that is of course through recall it's about memory it's about ways in which we then recall and then there's different ways in which that gets wrapped up in how we might understand technology and um, the sense in which uh, you know from the moment we start making marks and clay tablets onwards 
where we're using a prosthetic sense of memory. We're able to uh, material materially externalise thought up to a point, fix it in particular kinds of ways, and then and forget it and come back to it. Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of like an acceptance of our own uh, outsourcing of, of memory and, and ability and the excess of knowledge um, from the antiquity, basically, onwards. Yeah. Um, uh, cool, groovy. Um, in what way, um, Sam, um, do you find AI and artificial um, kind of learning uh, and, and that sort of, uh, whether it be uh, genetic algorithms or machine learning algorithms and neural networks and things like this, which are um, very popular and in the news a lot at the moment uh, to do with uh, all sorts of different technologies and, and being imbued, 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 imbued in, in everything at the moment. Um, in, in what ways are you seeing that um, affects um, what, what kind of area of study is um, or kind of... Um, come into um, the way you're looking at the mediation of our world, I guess. Mm. Well, I guess all the way through our conversation, I've been talking about um, how I'm interested in how people tell stories yep. about technology and how I then might tell stories about technology, because of course I'm not, not at a distance from any of this. Um, so my immediate response to your question would be, what well, not it interesting that actually we don't just stop with a kind of uh, description about how these technologies may or may not work and their limits. Actually, what happens is people run off down the road, either screaming and worried about Terminator or, yep. you know, pick another dystopian science fiction story. Or uh, I think it's, you know, we're racing headlong towards the singularity. It's, it's always... Uh, taken to an extreme in various kinds of ways and in, um, I guess uh, the thing that then becomes interesting to propose is a slowing down of how we tell those stories and to think a little bit more critically and I don't mean necessarily negatively mm -hmm. I just mean how we ask more nuanced questions about so well what do the people who are making these things think they're doing yeah sure how is it that they um, how is it that the things that they make provide particular kinds of affordances or, or not how do they break um, how do they get repurposed, reimagined, reused, and then how do they how do they get translated through popular culture? Because, like you've been suggesting, you know, there's an enormous amount of um, sort of popular writing about these kinds of things. So, in that sense, you could, you know, there's there's all sorts of research projects that no doubt are happening precisely about the kinds of not quite fiction but also not quite fact that are being kind of related about how AI or different flavours of algorithm, another word which I find quite problematic um, and um, In what way do you find that problematic? I guess because it, again yeah. it, it, it's used as a catch-all so it, yeah. it gets used to hide other things yes, sure. either purposefully or not so you know, we have um, we have a, a much bigger vocabulary for thinking about the phenomena that get you that get labelled by the word algorithm. Mm -hmm. So we might think about program, protocol, routine, um, device, all yeah. sorts of other kinds of things um, that maybe get at some of the nuance that we might want to actually open out 
rather than black box with the word algorithm sure. say so for example you know we often hear phrases like Google's algorithm or yeah. Facebook's algorithm yeah. that singularizes this idea of there's this one uh, thing which of course is essentially saying Google and Facebook do magic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. They're not saying that actually these are complex organizations that engage in all sorts of kinds of work, yeah. um, that have um, different kinds of infrastructures upon which they're contingent, yeah. and then um, are profoundly wrapped up with different forms of human, human in scare quotes, and that, yeah. uh, insofar as we might separate out the fleshy sacks that we walk around as. Yeah. Which again is a problematic distinction. Yeah, or wetware. Yes, that's a horrible. <laughs> that makes me cringe. But yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, when when people say algorithm to me, I mean, I, th I find uh, artificial intelligence or AI as similarly problematic mm. because it can mean lots of different things, mm. and it's becoming more synonymous with neural networks and stuff yep. like that, which is uh, fine, but it's not the whole research plethora of, no, of artificial intelligence at all. Uh, it's just a, a certain subset. Um, whereas algorithms, in my head, I always see the Google um, page rank algorithm yeah. because that's, that is definitely a singular algorithm. You could write it out as a mathematical equation and it just so happens that that equation gets inputs and outputs and that is manifest in a computer yeah. program. And it's, you know, you could probably write it out and it wouldn't be yeah. too large, but... Um, that is uh, a part of this larger machine, which um, yeah. effectively in Google, which is um, many, many, many more algorithms um, or kind of smaller functions that all build this huge yeah. Goliath almost. Yeah, um, yeah so just a bit of, uh, digging into that. Um, yeah, and there's been all sorts of arguments about definition. Sure. And, um, Again, that's political. That's about saying who has the authority to name things in various kinds of ways. I guess I'm less interested in the authority of naming. So I'm not saying anything's wrong. Yes. Right? You sure you wouldn't want a, a Kinsley algorithm? No. No? I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, yeah, there's various kinds of authority of sort of naming stuff, but maybe one of the interesting things to do, maybe because I'm just a bit contrarian, sure, <laughs> is to kind of pick about, pick out, and pick apart how that authority is functioning. So that's when I talk about discourses. Yep. I guess that's what I mean. What I mean is, it's the ways in which people convene and construct and then perform a conversation, in you know, variously in uh, in text, orally, all sorts of ways. Um, but then the ways in which that you know, inherently has some kind of politics to it because people are positioning themselves in different kinds of ways and that mm -hmm. means that our understanding flows in different kinds of ways and, and changes. And so some things might be hidden, some things might be played up. Mm. So Foucault, um, the French sort of social theorist um, Michel Foucault talks about discursive regimes. He's precisely talking about the ways in which these conversations um, take on a kind of power relation. Yeah. So the ways in which people can kind of claim a sort of authority. So algorithm is, a, as a word and a concept, is an, uh, a kind of interesting example of that. There's a way in which, uh, by invoking the idea of algorithm, you're assuming a particular kind of power because you're pointing at a particular phenomena and saying it's this, this where it might yeah. be actually what you're doing is not pointing at that phenomena, you're sort of hiding behind the concept to be able to make 
to be able to hide other things. Yeah, to make assertion in a different light or, or to yeah. misconstrue something else. Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. I um, I was wondering. Um, yeah. You mentioned um, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, could you briefly um, tell us what research you were doing there? Yeah. Sure. Um, so I spent two periods um, of time in 2008 and 2011 mm-hmm. um, interviewing people who were variously involved in different, um, well, actually quite specific kinds of co- computing research and development, which um, was more or less solely concerned with um, corporate research and development labs um, and the way in which they uh, were engaged in the development of something that used to get called ubiquitous computing, possibly less so now. But the idea that um, computation disappears into the into the woodwork of everyday life is essentially what um, one of the first people to sort of name this stuff uh, described it as. So a guy called Mark Weiser, who worked at um, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center um, in the 80s and 90s, um, kind of wrote an article that got uh, published in uh, Scientific American in 91 called The Computer for the 21st Century. And in that, interestingly, he uses a story. He literally tells a fictional story yeah. about a woman called Sal waking up and gives, kind of gives an account of her her day. Yeah. And in giving that account, he describes and brings in these ideas about how it's not about a specific device like the laptop that you have in front of you, yeah. but it's about lots and lots of different devices, a whole kind of ecosystem of devices um, whose computational power is sort of hidden away. It doesn't get in our way. Yeah. He liked this idea of sort of calm computing. So, and I guess, you know, there's, there's bigger themes yeah. around California of the kind of 70s and 80s that probably play into that about, you know, a particular version of utopianism, a particular version of um, sort of hippie culture and all sorts of other things. Yeah. And um, a fantastic book about that. Um, was written by um, a guy called Fred Turner at Stanford called From Can- from Counterculture to Cyberculture and he kind of unpicks that. Anyway, that's kind of like the background to essentially what I was doing is asking people about the actual stuff that they're doing on a day-to-day basis yeah. when they're attempting to invent this extraordinary idea of ubiquitous computing yeah. and how they then relate to an idea of a technological future because everything that they're asked to do is, is essentially to think about a future mm-hmm. and to try and anticipate particular worlds in, and, con- and kind of imagine those worlds in which the devices they're creating might function. So what might, be, what might the life of a user of your ubiquitous computing product look like? Yeah. And of course we don't know, so they're having to engage in all sorts of different forms of... But they must have ideas, right? Yeah, and a lot of those are, of course, based on their own um, experience. And the interesting thing about that, of course, is that most of these people are white middle-class men. <laughs> so the kinds of vision of the future very much are kind of culturally situated. Yeah. Um, but having said that, it kind of opens out interesting ways of asking questions about what the agency of you know, our ideas about a technological future is um, and the kinds of bigger stories um, that get uh, 
got kind of get used as part of them. Mm. So I became interested in the sense in which actually um, a lot of what they were doing was more or less political, not with a capital P, but with a little p, um, to think about, you know, the ways in which different kinds of competing visions of a given future get presented by different labs who are trying to present different ways of thinking about how particular kinds of tasks may or may not get performed and how different aspects of our everyday lives may or may not be transformed or mediated through the technologies that they're creating. Mm. So on the one hand, you've got um, you've very much got a kind of compute computation agency in the background um, in the Palo Alto Research Centre vision of the early 90s. Another project that I looked at um, was a project um, from HP Labs that was about 10 years later that gets referred to as Cool Town, um, <laughs> which is everything's, everything's got a web server in it. Is right. the premise it's this idea that everything is addressable yeah. using the internet in different kinds of ways, um, and that you can kind of ask questions of it, and it can they can variously interrelate, um, and actually then in versions of the story that get told of uh, Cool Town, some of some of those things are much more about vying for your attention than the story that Mark Weiser tells about Sam. So um, there is an implicit ethics of interaction that is um, that plays out in these different kinds of stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's informed by the cultural situation yeah. and their backgrounds and um, how they're thinking about the implementation of this cool town. Or, or yeah, and the kinds of institutional frameworks and different kinds of um, practices, sort of communities of practice that uh, in which they're engaged. So the ways in which different people cut, um, have ideas and bring them to the fore become more central characters to how they understand this particular uh, version of a technological future. But it's also the ways in which, in, me- in most of these cases, the future is somehow a blank slate. Mm. that can be written onto. Yeah. So um, you're unencumbered by the messy politics of the present. You can just project into this kind of... And that's that's pregnant in phrases like blue skies thinking. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that is, of course, necessary. We need nece- There are necessary levels of abstraction that we have to engage in. But it kind of becomes interesting um, when you're then trying to... Uh, uh, systematize that and turn it into a product yes sure uh, and the impact it has as a product and yeah. the, uh, un- unintended impacts uh, and um, ethical impacts yeah and the kinds of clashes then um, or the kinds of um, uncanny that can be produced in that where you just kind of like as a user you might go oh that's a bit weird yeah don't like that or or just say, actually, this is not how I think about the world. This is really unhelpful. Yeah. And that product then dies a death or whatever. Yeah. But of course, even before you get to it being in our hands, it's gone through all sorts of forms of translation through 
uh, you know, a corporate business division that is developing an idea into a product. And of course, a lot of these ideas don't ever actually get turned into products. So they remain as intellectual property, um, which you then kind of protect. And so you get these big corporate battles that, you know, most people, who can blame them for not being interested? But, you know, there's an interesting kind of politics to an ethics to how knowledge gets policed in R&D land. Yes, yeah, yeah, especially in that land. I mean, I feel like um, in my mind there's a um, the devolution um, of that kind of practice where R&D as a discipline is becoming more innovation or kind of business mm. and R&D as a specific sector or like part of a business is, is, doesn't really exist anymore except for in the larger institutions uh, like Procter and & Gamble and HP um, and places like this where most of us are striving for innovation but we don't actually do research and development because that's, that's almost the terminology is old rather than the practice of that terminology Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting it's, a, yeah. it's kind of like a trend that's I'd agree and I think you know the the differences I saw between 2008 and 2011 and then you know I'm in touch with some of those people now you know another five years on um, you know, none, none of those people are working in corporate labs anymore right um, or if they are they're working in very different kinds of institutional setup yeah um, so whereas a lot of people working for HP IBM um, Microsoft, uh, Nokia, yeah. Uh, yeah. a lot of those people then went into startups or went into slightly smaller uh, businesses. Uh, they kind of stepped sideways into other kinds of work. Um, so they either became more apparently sort of business oriented so sure. it was about working towards the construction of and creation of products yep. but actually it's still the things that they were doing on a day-to-day basis were still quite similar it's yeah. just they're taking in more of the uh, of that kind of path from initial concept to um, to beginning to produce prototypes and then a kind of something that gets maybe turned into a product. Yeah, yeah. So the kinds of business practices that are, uh, people are engaging in are, are quite different, and the kinds of uh, contexts that they occur in are very different. Yeah, and smaller cycles as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, instead of all this testing. And I think that future, the future that um, is always just down the road, the horizon that that um, operates at is quite elastic it kind of stretches it it kind of boomerangs backwards and forwards so when Wiser was working you know he was he was talking maybe 10 12 15 years ahead and then there are other uh, contexts in which actually yeah, the furthest ahead that these, some people might be thinking is like four yeah. or five years. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and that's contingent on all sorts of um, different kinds of pressures that occur in, in the kinds of business that are operating. 
Do you, um, so I have two more questions. Yeah, go on. Um, we end on a high, so before that one, yeah. um, is there anything that scares you about the, our technological future? Uh, a lack of imagination. Yeah, in what way? Um, well, if we continue to tell um, the same stories that we're telling now, yeah. um, and like, like Terminator and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and allow um, that that to be the story, mm-hmm. um, then we uh, limit the possibilities. So it's it's about changing the narrative um, culturally, the cultural narrative. Yeah, and maybe including more people in that, in yeah. the creation of that narrative in various kinds of ways. So allowing more people into the story in different kinds of ways, I think is probably a really important element. So more diversity as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so, you know, rather than sort of reading the slightly more male and muscular visions of technological future that occur in certain versions of science fiction mm-hmm. yeah, maybe we should be reading more Ursula Le Guin right yeah um, and maybe we should be reading more Afrofuturism and you know maybe we should be attending to different and perhaps contrary stories because that way there's more well it, it produces a more exciting more eclectic yeah. future that we might want to live in well maybe I should get you to um, send me a reading list after this <laughs> and I'll, I'll put it up on the, uh, on the, on the site as I'll well I'll give it a go yeah um, so so, yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the things, um, just a quick example, like Moon, have you seen the film Moon? Mm. I think what Moon does really brilliantly is it has an AI character. Yeah. And it plays on the fact that usually in films, in, in our cultural narrative, AI characters, artificial intelligences, are usually bad or, mm. or they play out um, in some sort of catastrophe. Yeah. And in Moon, actually, it plays on that fact by creating this tension, but actually the AI is um, helpful, helpful throughout the yeah. film. Um, and the tension isn't actually with that character at all it's with um the the circumstance and and humanity's um, what humanity has done in that circumstance um so i, I find that really funny mm. that that tension only exists because our narrative is so negative against these things yeah. um currently um and i also believe um I, I presume as you do that we can kind of change our future through these cultural narratives these cultural artifacts uh, and if we start thinking positively about them hopefully you know people make good things and, and have a different view on and how these things can operate and exist and yeah yeah Yeah. there's one quote that um gets used a lot um and is quite divisive um, and it's uh, comes from alan Kay, another person who works at the xerox palo alto research center he talks about the best way to uh the best way to predict the future is to invent it and um yeah a lot of people kind of um overcode that uh, quote with the idea that um, that essentially that this is about a kind of capturing the futures in particular kinds of ways and that it represents um, some kind of corporate capitalist ideology. Sure. But there is perhaps a more forgiving interpretation, which is to say, well, actually, the agency lies with all of us in various kinds of ways. Um, And so by being inventive, we can 
we can perhaps have uh, different and better. Yeah, uh, being inventive, just uh, um, creating new narratives, participating in, in different ways, um, creating conversation, discourse. Yeah. These are all participatory areas, uh, yeah. arenas. So and an example yeah. of this is um, a project I was involved in um, as part of uh, European Capital of Culture in 2012, which was in Guimaraes in Portugal. Right. Um, and we did um, some some workshops with any interested citizen, anybody who wanted to turn up as a free workshop. And we began to kind of try and produce particular kinds of stories and scenarios um, about the ways in which they thought technology might help in their everyday lives. Yeah. And then rather than kind of fetishise the shiny kind of objects yeah. and create them in uh, CGI or anything. We made props out of cardboard. Sure. So then what it kind of focused on is precisely the kind of ideas mm -hmm. and um, the kind of inventive agency of those workshop scenarios. So what it does is produce a kind of sense in which actually it's about the ideal, it's not about the shiny object. Yeah. So one, one thing that they would the people were really interested in was this idea of um, taking on um, a collective responsibility for one another's health. So uh, rather than have a device that is kind of constantly checking on you and reporting your vital statistics back to some centralized server mm. and then, you know, the emergency services being called um, automatically. Yeah. Actually what it was is that there were sensors built into the street furniture in this vision, mm -hmm. um, and they would then alert people who happen to be close by. Yeah, yeah. Our model of That's how this works yeah. suggests this person might be in trouble. Yeah. So please, can you help? Yeah. And so then it was your responsibility as a kind of fellow citizen to check this person was okay. Yeah. So it's a kind of really interesting sort of ethical stance that was being um, taken in the inter interpretation of what. A technological future might, might look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. Uh, I think we've already kind of headed in that direction, but what it, what is it that excites you about the future, or these future visions? Um, that's an interesting... I find that quite a difficult question to answer. Not because I'm um, horribly pessimistic, um, but because I find the visions themselves interesting objects of study but not mm. necessarily things that I want to particularly buy into sure especially so I'm interested in um, I'm, qu I'm quite excited by the ways in which um, the kind of vernacular practices of video the ways in which um, we all have devices mm. on our person most of the time through which we can create um, sort of whimsical or serious visions of the future yeah. quite quickly um, and relatively straightforwardly mm -hmm. um, so that actually it's a kind of pluralising of um, at least the potential for people to be able to tell convincing stories yeah. about the kinds, the kinds of um, people they want to be the kinds of world they want to live in so I guess it's that um, extension and expansion of kind of the capacity to be able to tell the sto a, a story about the future that I find um, relatively hopeful. Mm. Cool. Well, 
Um, thanks, Sam, uh, for joining us on the podcast today. And um, we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, cheers.